I'm excited about the topic assigned to me by the Lord uh, in our ongoing studies through this subject, this overriding subject that we've entitled Come Back to Church. Uh, You'll recall that this is a series we began in February this year as part of our vision connected with our theme verse that's up the front here. As we try and understand a little bit more about the biblical model of church. Uh, And let me remind you again this morning that much of what we see today in contemporary Christianity is a long way away from biblical church. Thus the reason for our studies into this subject. And so uh, a number of weeks ago we began a journey into a mini-series which I entitled The Body Concept. Hopefully, if, uh, if you're with us, you'll remember that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 was our text. We're not going there now. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 26, we looked at five distinct points. And I want to briefly run them through by way of introduction. We talked about the fact that the local church is Christ's body, according to verse 12 of that chapter. Secondly, we looked at the unity that exists in diversity because of the Spirit. And uh, if you don't believe me, look around, look at the unity, look at the person next to you, look at their cultural background, look at their financial situation, look at everybody. Yeah, it doesn't work for you, Chris, over there. You've got nobody next to you. I saw you look next to you. The unity and diversity is everywhere when we look at the church. And that's wonderful. That was God's design. Then we looked at the essential role of every individual member. Nobody's able to... Uh, exist on their own. There's no independence in that. We're mutually dependent and God sovereignly appointed each member. The fourth thing we looked at in that little series was that the body must not be divided. Division is not God's plan for the church. And where there is division, we have problems. And number five, we looked at this matter of mutual care and empathy for one another. And we spent a long time looking at what that was. What does it look like When John says, be prepared to lay down your life for the brethren. What does that look like? What is this matter of true mutual dependence and love and compassion for one another look like? We spent a long time looking at that. But this morning, as we move forward in this overall study, we're going to begin a new mini-series. What would uh, our church situation be like if I wasn't starting mini-series? Everybody smiles and nods. We want to focus on God-ordained leadership in the church as defined by the scriptures. And there's three specific things we're going to look at in this mini-series, and I'm going to give them to you now. First thing you learn in homiletics is never give away your points before you uh, actually get to the points, but I'm going to break that rule so you know that the roadmap is as follows. There's three God-ordained leaderships or leadership roles as defined in the scriptures. The first one, which is the greatest one is preeminent or supreme leadership. And you probably worked out who that is, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we'll look at in some weeks to come is pastoral leadership, the local spiritual leadership of the church, pastors, shepherds, elders. I'm not particularly looking forward to that one because that's always incredibly convicting when I have to read about what God has called uh, Terry and I and others in the future too. And then the third one is practical leadership, which is the local practical leadership of the church, deacons and deaconesses as seen in the scriptures. And we're going to look at that in time to come. So that's the roadmap. 
the preeminent one, the Lord Jesus Christ, pastoral leadership, practical leadership. The saviour, the spiritual servant, the practical servant. This morning, we're going to look at church leadership, part one, and specifically the head of the church. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you recognising that uh, no man uh, in and of himself is able to communicate these truths effectively, but by the Spirit and the power of the Spirit that lives within. And so, Father, I pray that today uh, you would cause uh, me to communicate effectively that which has been studied. I pray you would uh, bring about a desire in each heart to learn, to listen, to uh, apply Uh, to be yielded to the Spirit as he would seek to point out specifics in each of our lives that only he can do. And so, Lord, we express, we declare our dependence upon you for these next few moments together as we study this all-important subject, uh, as we seek to exalt the Lord Jesus as the head of the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Point number one, very simply, is this. Christ's supreme leadership... In the church, Christ's supreme leadership in the church. Let me make a statement here this morning, uh, an unassailable, irrefutable statement. This is the statement. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, we probably know that, most of us, if you've been in church, in and around church for any length of time. But we're going to prove that fact from the scriptures. Turn with me, please, this morning. We're going to go a number of places, but let's go to Colossians chapter 1 to begin with, please. Colossians chapter 1. And if you'll find verse 13, we'll begin reading there once you've found that. Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, as you can well see, there is an enormous amount of material in those verses that we're not going to cover. There's one thing that I just want to remind you of that you know in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the one from whom we have received redemption in verse 14, the one from whom we have received forgiveness of sin, he is the head of the church. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 just to further prove this point in Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 15 if you would find that to keep it in uh, some context here rather than just read the individual verse verse 15 Ephesians chapter 1 for this reason because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, very clearly, the Apostle Paul points out the fact that this incredible God, this person, this man, Jesus Christ, has all of these uh, things that he's preeminent over. But in particular, the one that we're looking at is the church. One more passage we'll look at just to uh, help us understand some more. Ephesians chapter 5, just a couple of chapters or pages. And this is an unusual passage, perhaps. We don't necessarily think of it in this context all that often, but in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is dealing with the family. And in verse 22, this is what he writes. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, that's not why my wife is away today, by the way. She didn't read my notes and think, I'm not coming. Okay. This is not so much in the context of uh, family that we want to look at this morning as much as that the Bible clearly says that the model of husband and wife is the model of Christ and his church. That is a very, very powerful comparison. And very clearly, Christ is the head of the church in verse 23. So what I want to do this morning as we look through some of these points, I just want to give you two distinct concepts under this first heading for us to understand. What does Paul mean by Jesus Christ being the head of the church? That's an important question. And there's two distinct concepts being used here. The first is physiological. By that, we talk about the physical head. All of us have one. If you don't have one, you're not really here and alive. The head is attached to the body. It contains the brain and it exerts centralized control over all the other organs of the body. Now, most of us know that. You know that if a head is amputated from the body, life ceases to exist. The Romans knew that, which is why beheading was their trademark for martyrdom. Physical life ceases when the head is removed. Since the church is likened to a body, and we've looked at that so much, and Christ is called the head of the body, it is clear then that Christ operates with supreme control, centralized control over the church. And therefore life is only possible when we are connected to him. What a wondrous thought. We know that if you're a Christian. We know that Christ who is our life, we know that that's the only means and it's Christ who lives in me now. Galatians 2.20 tells us, but if you are severed from the head, metaphorically speaking, you are not one of his. Because where the head is connected to the body, 
There is life. Physiological. The second aspect here is metaphorical. And Paul engages in metaphors many times. The whole concept of the body is a metaphor. And when we speak of a head metaphorically, rather than physically, we are speaking of someone who's in charge. Someone who's a boss. Someone who's the head of an organization or an agency or a kingdom. Speaks of authority and prominence and rule and management and power and all of those other grand words connected with someone who's in charge. And so both physiological and metaphorical truths are seen when Paul refers to the Lord Jesus as the head of the church. I want to take a few moments here on this first point and we'll race through these. I want to, based on that reality that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, I want to clarify some misconceptions that we see today in so-called Christianity. First of all, Christ is the head of both the local and the universal church. Now, let me explain this for just a moment very quickly. When first you come to understand the truth of the gospel and you place your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, your sins are forgiven, you're justified, you're declared righteous. At that instant, you are you enter into what is called the universal church. Simply put, every other believer in the world alive at that time forms part of that universal church. So that means that uh, those up the road who meet here this morning, though they may have doctrinal differences in some areas, if they are truly saved, they are part of the family of God. For want of another term, universal church is the broad family of God. In different countries, down the road, whoever names the name of Christ and is his, is part of the universal church. And we understand that. And so we want to be very careful when it comes to having differences of opinion and doctrine and things, although that is important that we maintain truth in that. We also do not disregard individuals who are truly saved, though they have a different position on things. Okay, And there is a fine balance to be had between that. But they are still brother and sister in Christ. And we need to understand that. The universal church. But very quickly after you become a Christian and you enter into that universal church, the Bible tells us one should join up with a local church. This here, Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church, is a local church. And by local church, we mean locational church. A group of believers who come together with one purpose in mind, the glorification of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel to the world, the utterance of truth to one another, the building up of the saints, that forms a local church. That forms a group of people. And we meet together here this morning as a local church. Some deny the universal church. Some deny the local church. Both are taught in the scriptures. And we need to understand them. That's one clarification I want to make. The next one deals with the papacy. Some of you say, what's the papacy? I speak of the Catholic Church and the Pope, Vatican City. I need to tell you this morning a statement of fact is this. The papacy, the concept of the Pope and all that relates to that, is born out of a misinterpretation of Scripture. It happened a long time ago. In fact, the scripture is Matthew chapter 16, 18 to 19. We're going to look at that in a little while. Because you see, in the Roman Catholic teaching, which I spent some time studying again this week to remind myself, the Pope forms, if you like, the vicar of Christ, the means by which one can be atoned, 
before God. Now, if you know anything about theology and the doctrines of Scripture, you know that there is but one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so I say lovingly and carefully, but yet boldly, that the concept of the Vatican City, the concept of papacy is not in the Scriptures and therefore must be rejected. It is to be refuted. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, who was never one to say things uh, gently, this is what he wrote. Actually, this is what he preached. Of all the dreams that ever deluded men, and probably of all the blasphemies that ever were uttered, there has never been one which is more absurd and which is more fruitful in all manner of mischief than the idea that the Bishop of Rome is the head of the church. No, These popes die, and how can the church live if its head dies? The true head ever lives, and the church lives in him. Christ did not redeem his church with his blood that the pope might come in and steal away the glory. He never came from heaven to earth and poured out his very heart, the Pope that is, that he might purchase his people, that that poor sinners, mere men, should be set upon high to be admired by all nations and to call himself God's representative on earth. Christ has always been the only head of the church. The church of God in a very special manner calls Jesus our Lord, for there is not and there never can be any head of the church except for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an awful blasphemy for any man on earth to call himself Christ, a vicar or a head of the church. It is a usurpation of the crown rights of King Jesus for anybody else to be called the head of the church. For the true church of Jesus Christ can have no head but Jesus himself. And Spurgeon writes, And I am thankful that there is no head to the church of which I am a member except Jesus Christ. Nor dare I be a member of any church which would consent to any headship but his. Let me state categorically for us this morning, the only head of the church is Jesus Christ. Thirdly, a couple of other observations. Archbishops, bishops, priests, and other forms of extra-biblical leadership also must be rejected. Fourthly, again, these are all, we could do message sermons on each of these, we're not doing that now, but fourthly, the autonomy of the local church. This is a scriptural teaching. Here's what I mean. The local church is independent. It is autonomous. What we mean by that is not that it has the right to do whatever it wants. But what it means is that the head of every local church is the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God forms our charter, as that wonderful song says. And Jesus Christ is our head. Fifthly, very important this one to me, incredibly important this one. The pastor Eldership, spiritual leadership of a local church must never, ever, ever be elevated to the place of supremacy. When church leaders either seek that or the people seek that, a cult is very quickly formed. And oh, we must be ever so careful that we do not for a moment think that anybody here or anybody else human could ever be supreme over the universal or the local church. We are at best men, fallible, failing, frail, and in need of constant strength from the Lord. 
The result is ruinous if we come to cult movements in the church of Jesus Christ. Number six and finally under this point, there is only one perfect leader. There is only one supreme leader and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other form of leadership is flawed in some area and this must be understood. Must be. Christ is the head of the church. Now I could sit down. Now, that's the end of that, if we like. That's, that's the summary of it all. But there's a couple of other things that I want us to see here this morning before we finish up. Point number two. Christ's right to rule. So we say, okay, he is the ruler. What gives him the right? What are his credentials, we might say? What qualifies him to be the head of the church? Where did he get his authority? As you probably guessed, I have a number of sub-points and I'm going to race through them quickly for us this morning. First of all, and we won't turn to them all, I'm going to have to read, I'll read them out to you and you'll have to make notes because we just don't want to take too much time here this morning. Christ's right to rule. His right to rule, first of all, is dispensed to him by his Father. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, we read this before, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he, the Father, put all things under his, the Lord Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, if you don't like the fact that Jesus is the head of the church, you'll have to talk to God the Father about it. Because it was God the Father who dispensed that role to the Son. The Bible tells us that. Now, that should be sufficient for us. Why is Jesus Christ the head of the church? Because God the Father said, God the Son, it's going under your feet, all of this. This is your dominion, your majesty, and your kingdom. But just in case you're not convinced by that, let me give you a few others. So Christ's right to rule is dispensed by the Father. Secondly, Christ is the architect of the church. That's a bit strange. That's unusual wording. I haven't read that in too many theological books in my life. Here's how I get that. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This most misused verse in the Roman Catholic position. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, Jesus says. The great architect. He says, I will build my church. We might say the owner builder. He didn't employ someone else to build his church. He was the owner builder. Jesus said, I am going to build my church. So much so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. By the way, I have to add this in here. It's not in my notes, but let me just quickly say the problem that the Roman Catholic Church has with this verse is that they believe that it was built upon Peter Whereas it's built upon Peter's confession in the previous verses, which say, you are the Christ, the son of the only God. The Lord Jesus was not saying, Peter, you are the rock that I'm going to build my church on. He was saying, the rock of your profession is what I'm going to build my church on. Simply put, Peter's profession was, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the profession and the confession on which the church is built. The Lord Jesus is the architect of the church. Gives him the right to rule. Thirdly, Christ is the life of the church. I love Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4. In there Paul says, When Christ who is our life shall appear. He's not an accessory. 
He's not just something we add to our life to look good. He is our life. Christ lives in me, the Bible says. I don't know what number I'm up to, but the next sub point is this. Christ is the redeemer of the church. If you're not yet convinced, here's another one. Ephesians 1 verse 7, in whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. Now I have to pause, redemption, this grand word in theology, redemption. To be bought back from the slave market of sin. Here's what happened. The Lord Jesus Christ came to a worthless servant, a slave, that is you and I, a depraved individual. And with his precious blood substituted our place that was death. Took death upon himself in his body on the tree. He died literally that this slave that is worthless, this slave of sin, might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He purchased my pardon. He purchased my freedom. He purchased my eternal destiny. He purchased my life and I am now owned by him. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us you were bought with a price. That price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Titus 2.14, Paul says to uh, Titus, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession. We are the possession of Jesus Christ. Two more sub points here. Why? How is it that he is the ruler? How is it that he's the head? Well, he's also... The bridegroom of the church. Christ is the bridegroom of the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read it just before. Verse 27, Paul says that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There's a couple of different metaphors in the scripture. One is the body concept. The other is the bride concept. The church of Jesus Christ is the bride of the bridegroom. We here, the point of us being here is that we would become this church that he can present to himself that has no spot or wrinkle, sanctified, wholly set apart for him. And one day we're going to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb together. And what a great consummation that will be on that day. Does Christ have the right to rule? Yeah, he does because he's the head. Just as the husband is the head of the wife in the scripture, so Christ is the head of his church. Lastly, what right does he have to be the head? Well, he's the one who nourishes and cherishes the church. He sustains the church. Again, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 29, Paul says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So you see, why is it? What are his credentials? Well, his credentials are manifold, and we could look at so many more, but clearly the Father gave him the right to reign and rule in the church as the head of it, but all of these other reasons form parts as to why Jesus is the head of the church. See, nobody else can be the head because nobody else can redeem you. Nobody else can be the head because God the Father gave that responsibility to nobody else. Nobody else can nourish and cherish your spiritual life but the Godhead. Therefore, Christ is the head of the church and all the credentials are met in him. Thirdly and lastly, but don't get excited because there's a bit in this one just yet. 
But I love this final point. This was the bit that thrilled me the most. So we talk about the fact that Christ is the head of the church. We ask the question, why is he? What are his credentials? What right does he have to rule? But now that we know he is the head, now that we know why he's the head, here is the wonderful question. What is his style of leadership? How does Christ rule? So we call this Christ's style of leadership. And this is particularly poignant to me because I'm told in the scriptures that as an under shepherd, I am to model the leadership I find in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's look at it. What kind of a leader? What kind of a head? What kind of a ruler is our savior? Now we know that he is absolute sovereign. We know he's the head. But how does he operate as the head? So the questions we have to ask are things like, okay, is he dictatorial like Hitler and Castro? Is he democratic and ruled by the people? Is he anarchistic, lacks organisation, authority and government of any sort? Is he autocratic, which denotes political power by self-appointment? Is he tyrannical? Operating with a selfish regime. What kind of government style, what kind of rulership does the head of the church operate with? Well, I think you would say with me as I have written here, no, no, no to any of those. Now, I struggled as I researched to find anybody who had made a commentary on particularly the governmental style of Jesus Christ. So I decided to make one up. So here it is. How would I describe Christ's leadership over the church? I have called it the patriarchal theocracy. Okay, here's what that means. Now, theocracy is a word and patriarchal is a word. I've put them together. Patriarchal theocracy. In other words, this is what it means. His rule is one of fatherly love while remaining supreme God. Fatherly love while remaining supreme, sovereign Almighty, all-powerful God. You say, well, isn't he more like a dictator? No, he's not like a dictator at all. Because a dictator cares little, if any, for the people over which he rules. Well, that's not how Jesus. My, My Jesus is not like Hitler and Castro. My Jesus is not someone who says, well, let's do whatever the people want. He's not a democratic leader. He doesn't say, well, let's get together together and say, well, what do you think? What do you think? And then we'll go forward. That's not how he works. He's not an autocratic leader. And he says, well, I'm going to self-appoint myself. I'm going to make myself. He's not tyrannical and says, well, let's just do it my way or the highway. But yet he is sovereign, supreme, but he exercises himself in absolute love. So let me give you a few points on that. Let me give you a few thoughts to consider as we draw to a close this morning. The first thing I want you to note about this patriarchal theocrat is that Christ is the loving shepherd. Throughout the scriptures, the Lord Jesus is referred to many, many times as the shepherd. And this beautiful term speaks of love. Speaks of tenderness, care, nurture, concern, guidance, loving discipline, 
Hebrews 13, 20, I want to give you a few verses here. We won't look at them all in our, uh, actually turn to the passages, but here they are. Hebrews 13, 20, I believe it's Paul writing Hebrews. He says at the end there, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Not just any shepherd, not just a shepherd out in the field, the great shepherd of the sheep. First Peter 5, 4, similarly, Peter says, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. First Peter 2, 25, you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. John 10, 11, the Lord Jesus recognizes before the people who he is and he uh, unveils himself and says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Again, in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And then if you say, well, yeah, that's, that's who he was while he was here on earth. Let's go to the future. Let's peer into the future. In Revelation 7 and verse 17, we read this. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne and will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living waters and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. He was the shepherd when he came at his first advent. He presently is the great shepherd over the church and he will forevermore be our shepherd. Christ, the loving shepherd. I want to pause for a moment. I'm going to ignore what's in front of me here for just a second. I want to remind us that as believers, we need a shepherd. We need an ultimate shepherd, and that shepherd is Jesus Christ. We need the guidance, the care, and the concern so that when we wrestle through this Christian life, when the the journey is dangerous and hard, and we find that the trial and the tribulation, the temptation sometimes feel like they're overwhelming us, we have a loving shepherd who is with us all the way, the one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have made my presence within. You are mine. I have purchased you. I will lead you. So perhaps today, maybe you sit there and you think, I'm in need of some leading. I'm in need of some some helping. I'm in need of being carried sometimes. That is what the shepherd does. And no earthly shepherd can ever do what the heavenly shepherd does. I shared with the young people last night at youth group the the wonderful parable that the Lord Jesus told when he was sitting with the the tax collectors and, and the uh, the vermin of the day and the Pharisees and the, and the tax collectors and people around him said, well, why are, you, uh, why are you with these sinners? The Lord Jesus tells them a parable. He says, a man has a hundred sheep and one's missing. And he literally leaves the 99 in order to go and get that. Now, we know the context of this is salvation of sinners. But that same care and tenderness takes the Lord Jesus up to the rocks, up to the mountains, up to the desert. And he finds finally that sheep and he puts it on his shoulders and he rejoices and carries it to the fold. Now, I recognize that is a picture of salvation. But, you know, that same shepherd is working with us so that when I get a little bit lost in the way, the Lord Jesus will find me, carry me and take me forward. We have a wonderful shepherd. We have a wonderful saviour and a loving, beautiful, caring, nurturing, concerned shepherd. We need to remember that. And maybe at this point in your life, for whatever reason, you need to cling to the reality. Jesus is my shepherd. The second thing we note here under this style of leadership, 
as we consider the overall biblical truth of who the Lord Jesus is. He's also the empathetic high priest. This is probably one of the texts that I spend more time in when I'm counselling people than any other text in the whole Bible. Because in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, this is what the author writes. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Lord Jesus incarnate comes in flesh, cloaks himself with the body of flesh, not only to die for sin, but to experience every aspect of human life so that when we come to him, we have an empathetic high priest who says, I understand. I've never sinned, but I understand. You say, this temptation is overwhelming in my life. You don't realize I can't overcome this addiction or this temptation. We come to this wonderful shepherd and he says, I've never sinned. But he says, I understand temptation more than you do. I understand what it is to have the actual devil and his demons uh, literally uh, hurling hostility towards me on earth. The Lord Jesus experienced that more than anybody ever will in this room. You say... What about when people malign me and they mock me and they they, they make fun of my faith? Did the Lord Jesus understand that? The Lord Jesus understood that more than anybody else in all of history. He is our empathetic, our sympathetic high priest. So that when we come to him, we say, Lord, I failed again. That same sin, I keep failing in it and I keep giving it back to you and I keep coming. You must be getting sick of me. And the Lord Jesus says, I bought you with my precious blood. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. He says, I empathize. Now, he's not okay with the sin. Let's not go on this side. He's not saying, well, that's okay. We'll just cover that over. No problem whatsoever. We recognize that he is a just and a righteous God. But we also realize his love, his concern and his empathy in every area of life. The rule and reign of Jesus Christ is marked By divine compassion and care. Wherever you are right now, Christian, whatever place you are in, the Lord Jesus is empathetic towards your need. He says, I can't see him. That's true, you can't. But you can read all about his life and you can talk with him and you can know by the power of the Spirit of God within you that he is there with you every moment of every day. That's why we can sing that wonderful song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our griefs and trials we bring to him. Christ is the empathetic high priest. Thirdly, Christ is the grace giver. So what kind of rule? He's the grace giver. By this I mean he dispenses divine enablement to the members of his body. You see, by nature, Jesus Christ is a giver. That's his nature. The very nature of God is to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. That's the nature of God. It's the nature of the Son. He liberally and extensively gives to his people the strength and empowerment to fulfill his will in all things. You say, where's that? Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. His divine power has he granted to us that pertain to life and godliness. All of those things are given to us. Colossians 1.11 says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Ephesians 3.16 says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. Christian, there are some words that should never be in our vocabulary, and that is, this is impossible. 
Because the Lord Jesus himself said, what is impossible to men is possible with God. You say, I can't do this. You're right, you can't. You got that right. But the head of the church can. And if it's his will, he will empower and enable you to overcome whatever it is. Christ is the grace giver. The last thing I want to look at this morning as we close, uh, and as you can imagine, there are so many more things we could look at in this great subject. But what kind of a king, what kind of a ruler, what kind of a head is this patriarchal theocrat? Christ is the rewarder. I want us to look at that for just a moment. Christ the rewarder. As if it were not sufficient that he bought us with his precious blood. As if it were not sufficient that he sanctifies us progressively moment by moment. If it were not sufficient that he has filled us with the spirit of God. But he also provides the believer with many rewards. And I have a few listed here for you. Again, we won't look at the text because of the time. The first thing that he rewards the believer is for prayer and fasting. Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you. You're praying, Christian. You're fasting, Christian. We know that prayer is not about how good we sound. It's not about eloquence. It's not about how well your words come out. It's about coming before the almighty God and bringing our praise and petition before him. Do you do that in private? Do you make time to be holy? Do you say or do you just sing the words of this song without it being a reality? Sweet hour of prayer. When I come away from the world and all of its desires, sweet hour of prayer. There's a reward for those who will pray and fast. Secondly, there is a reward for those who bear the reproach for Christ. Luke 6.22, blessed are you when people hate you. <laughs> How many of you thought about that? That, that? Just that line right there. Blessed are you when people hate you. Well, that's an exciting reality, isn't it? Don't we all go home from church today and say, man, this is so good. People hate me. I feel so blessed and encouraged in my life. That's not the natural reality, is it? But yet the Bible says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward in heaven is great. Um, I'm convinced, I don't know how many times I've said this here, but I'm convinced that sooner or later we're going to have the opportunity to see whether we can leap for joy in this country. Because sooner or later the persecution is going to get hotter and the difficulties are going to get hotter and it's, it's very easy to live as a Christian today right here. It's so easy. But one day that heat will get turned up. I wonder, will we leap for joy? Will we say, blessed be my soul that I have endured this like the Apostle Paul says, for the sake of Christ it is my privilege to suffer. Whew. You know how that comes? That only comes through the gospel. That only comes through understanding who this person Jesus Christ is. Leaping for joy. Thirdly, loving your enemies. Christ is the rewarder of those who love their enemies. Luke 6.35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. <laughs> Just take a moment to think about this. Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Now, 
Last time I had anything to do with any kind of a lender in this world, there wasn't uh, the attitude of, well, look, if you don't give it back, that's fine. If you don't pay me back, that's fine. This is the Christian life that changes everything from within, isn't it? I lend to my enemies, not just my friends. We're not talking about people just in the church here, you know, that are connected. We're talking about, I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to lend you my lawnmower and I might never get it back. I'm going to rejoice in that. But I just bought a new one. Oh, no, Lord, you can't want me to do that. That's a bit hard. No, come on, that's cutting above. This is Christ-likeness. This is the reward that is given to those who will gladly do that. And the Bible tells us, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Here's the gospel principle. You do it because Christ did it. You do it because Jesus Christ said, you, you are the exact same thing. You are the one who is ungrateful and evil in your sin. And yet I bestowed my precious son to you. How dare you withhold from others? This Christian life's hard. Only possible through the spirit of God. Number four, giving comes with a reward. Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you. What will be given to you? The return will be good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Give. Be giving. By the way, this passage, this passage I've heard people preach on this about the offering. That's got nothing to do. This, this giving is not about how much you give to the church or, or whether you put lots in the offering. That's not what this. This is about your life as a giver. Just give. Give liberally as much as you are able to in every area of life, not just in money, in everything. Give, 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 and the Lord will give back to you. You cannot outgive God. You cannot. It is an investment in eternity. Number five, and we'll finish quickly here. Faithfulness in the workplace. Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Uh, this king says, this ruler, this head says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. There is a reward for faithfulness to your employer, to the workplace. Number six, faithfulness to the truth. We have one more after this. In Second John 1, 7 to 8, John at the end of his life says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. There is a full reward for those who remain true to God's word. In the place of great heresy, which is where we live today. There is heresy left, right and centre. Remain true and this wonderful head will reward you for doing so. Number seven and finally, there are crowns for specific service and function. And I'm going to confess right up front here when I just share this with you that uh, there are all sorts of ideas about these crowns. And, and, and the answer to me in the scriptures is that these crowns, we really don't know anything about them hardly. But we do know that they're listed here. I'm going to give them to you real quick. There's five. The imperishable crown for faithful endurance. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 25. If you're faithful and endure temptation and hardship, there is an imperishable crown. The second one is the crown of rejoicing. This is set aside for those who are faithful to the testimony of Christ under great trial and temptation. This is the martyr's crown. C, 
Thirdly, the crown of righteousness, those who are faithfully awaiting the coming of the Lord and love his return, the Bible says. There is a crown of righteousness for those who are longing and looking rather than being so focused on the temporal life. Fourthly, there's the crown of glory for the faithful pastor and elder, 1 Peter 5, 1-4. And then lastly, the crown of life for faithfulness under immense trial, James 1, 12. James says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them. What a loving, faithful, wonderful head we serve. What an incredible saviour we have. I want to close this message out by reading a psalm, the most familiar psalm, the most familiar chapter in the Bible, Psalm 23. If you turn there as we close, and you might think that's an unusual place to finish. Here we have the psalmist likening himself to a sheep being led by a grand shepherd, which is the Lord. And I believe this psalm provides the perfect blend of Christ's leadership and love for his people. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, mine. Please don't skip over any of these little words. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, I shall be in need of nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. question to ask there in your own time is why does he make me a very very important truth there he leads me beside still waters if you've ever had anything to do with sheep you know they're spooked at any movement still waters he restores my soul notice it doesn't say my body He restores my soul, the inner man. That's how Paul can say after immense trial and tribulation, he says, my outer man is wasting away, but my inner man is being renewed day by day. He restores my inner man. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his glory, his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Even though I go through these places of immense hardship. I will fear no evil. For you are with me. The abiding presence. Your rod and your staff. They comfort me. One of those is for leading and one is for discipline. Your rod and your staff. And I'm comforted by both. I'm comforted by the discipline of the Lord and I'm comforted by the leading of the Lord. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Picture of great blessing. My cup overflows so much so that everything is overflowing. Oh, the goodness and the the grace of our God.
Surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then to look to the future beyond this life, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is our head. This is our shepherd. This is our king. What a blessed people we are to have this kind of a headship. Heavenly Father, thank you for a time that we can spend in your word. Thank you so much that we can look to the person of Jesus Christ, the head of the church before whom all the nations and throngs and people and languages will one day bow. And Lord, we know that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you for uh, giving uh, us the privilege of serving him. Help us to be loyal citizens, loyal subjects in his kingdom, to await uh, the, uh, the actual reality of his kingdom that is yet to come, uh, that we would serve faithfully in this time. Thank you for the rewards that are available. Lord, we know that even without rewards, it is an absolute privilege to serve the one who bought us with his precious blood. But so gracious are you that you even give us rewards for the service that you, in fact, empower us to do. How great is this gospel? Thank you, Lord, for your leadership in this church. Lord, help us at Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ, the headship, our King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in whose name we pray. Amen.